Uh, I didn't feel like I was shining too brightly. I'd had four nights out in a row by Thursday night. Uh, This little light of mine wasn't really shining that brightly. But uh, it was probably shining about as brightly as the Wallabies line out last night. A little bit ragged around the edges. But we heard last week that the light that's shining isn't our light. The light that's shining isn't our light. The light that we are called to shine is the light of Christ. Now, happily, this morning, in the passage that Carlos just read to us, the focus shifts in the Sermon of the Mount. The focus shifts from ourselves, and it lands squarely again on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just pause for prayer and ask for his enabling to unpack this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather this morning. We thank you that we can gather in your name on this winter's morn and that we can be warmed by your gospel. And so, Father, we ask that you would illuminate this word now by your spirit. We ask that you would humble our proud hearts. We ask that you would strengthen our timid hearts. Lord, this morning we would ask that you would transform and renew our stony hearts that we might see Jesus, and we ask this in his name and for his glory. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to Matthew 5, uh, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The last two weeks, the first 16 verses of Matthew 5 uh, have really been an introduction to the Sermon of the Mount. And now we are entering into the sermon proper. And we know that because... The next two chapters begin and end with this reference to the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. And so we find this shorthand description of the Hebrew scriptures in their entirety. What follows is a discourse on the relationship between the written word of God and the incarnate word of God, Jesus And the first statement that Jesus makes is that he has not come to abolish the Old Testament. He's not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, earlier in Matthew's gospel, we've already seen that worked out in practice. We've already seen that as Jesus is led into the wilderness, he's tempted by the enemy, and he rebukes the enemy with the word of the Lord. He responds to the attack and the temptations from the devil with the word of the Lord's. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, this is vital for us to understand the rest of the sermon. These few passages, I would say, are keys to us interpreting the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The word that Jesus uses here for fulfill is plerao, and it means to fill up, to complete to perfect, to bring to fruition. Early in Mark's gospel, before Jesus calls the 12 disciples to himself, Jesus is recorded as healing on the Sabbath. And many people are wondering, how can this man of God be healing and doing work on the Sabbath? Surely he is trampling all over the word of God. 
No doubt people are asking questions about his commitment to the word of God. And they're also asking questions about his authority to be teaching the way that he is teaching. In verse 18, his statement, for truly I tell you, is an emphatic statement. And the authority that he speaks is the authority of his own person. But verse 17 makes it quite clear his authority in no way diminishes or destroys the authority of the word of God, the prophets, the law. Rather, he fills it up, he completes it, he brings it to fruition. He is perfecting the word of God now in his ministry, in his person. So let's just consider those two aspects of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. The law sometimes referring to the first five books of Moses, as it is in verse 17. Sometimes it's referring to all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament, as it does in verse 18. The law reveals the commands of God. The commands that he gave supremely to Moses to establish the people of Israel to allow them to walk in God's ways. They followed on from God's gracious deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. And so we read in the preface to the Ten Commandments, we read the following, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then follows the limits that God gives to Israel if they are to walk in step with him. Ten words from God, excluding idolatry, excluding blasphemy, excluding dishonoring the Sabbath, dishonoring parents, dishonoring uh, to excluding stealing, lying, or committing adultery, and then follows on from the Ten Commandments, further guidelines, all to help Israel in their walk with God's, how they'll worship, how they'll celebrate how they'll define themselves in relation to other nations, how they will punish criminals, how they will eat and what they will eat, food that is deemed to be clean, food that is deemed to be unclean. And guess what? Included in that unclean category, and I'm looking at the men's breakfast crew, is bacon, pork, and chops. And rock badges. Rock badges are also unclean, so there should be no rock badger sausages. They're off limits. But it goes on to talk about laws of marriage, sexual purity for property and business. All of these are included in the law of God to help define the character of Israel, to shape the way that Israel would walk. And Jesus is saying that these will not pass away until heaven and earth passes away. How are we to understand these today? Likewise, the prophets. The majority of the Old Testament is taken up with prophetic writings. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. The minor prophets, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Zechariah, and so on. The prophets have two main tasks. The prophets have two main tasks. Firstly, to warn the Israelites when they are stepping outside of the law of God, to call them back to alignment with God's teaching and God's commands, and secondly, to announce the beauty, the wonder of what life in God's plan can actually look like in the present for Israel, but also into the future, well, well into the future. So the prophets have those two threads to them, the warning 
and the announcing of what God's kingdom might look like. Listen to Isaiah 35. See, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be no more heard. So the law and the prophets, the commands of God, the prophetic utterances of God, none of these will pass away, Jesus is saying here, until heaven and earth passes away. All the commands of God to Israel, the warnings and the promises, all of the Hebrew scriptures will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. And when Jesus worked on the Sabbath and he healed the man, was he not abolishing the law? The questions were being asked by the people that were following him and observing him. But he says, no, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Now, there's a, a fascinating and wonderful passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that I think beautifully holds the law and the prophets together. I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy 30, 15 and following. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Is the theme of the law. But he goes on to say, then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. There's the prophetic utterance that's coming in. But as your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Life and death, blessing and curses. Where do we see this blessing and this cursing combined? Where do we see heaven and earth combined? Where do we see life and death revealed in stark brutality and hope? We see it in the cross of Calvary. And when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he comes to fulfill this utterance. Firstly, at the cross of Calvary. Israel took but a few hours upon receiving the law from Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, but a few hours before they fell into idolatry and worshipped the golden calf. Jesus in the garden in lament cries out to God for the cup of wrath to be taken from him, and yet in obedience declares, not my will but yours be done. You see, he fulfills the commands of God. He fulfills the prophetic utterances of God. He fills up what was not yet full in the Old Testament. At the cross, Jesus obeys the commands of God completely and perfectly in the way that Israel did not and could not. He fulfills 
the law and the prophets. Three days after his death, he rises from the dead, overcoming death. He gathers 11 apostles, firstly 12, but in the resurrection, he gathers the remaining 11. And he says, wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power from on high to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, pouring out his spirit on all flesh. He fills up and overflows what the prophets had tasted, but only just tasted. He fills it. He brings it to fruition. He perfects what has been revealed in the old. This is the good news Isaiah and Joel and others look forward to. But the fulfillment still waits its final consummation. There is more yet to come. The kingdom is here already, but there is more to come. And it will be fulfilled and it will be ultimately perfected when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead and when he claims his own and welcomes his own people into his presence and into the presence of the Father. Every tear will be removed. Every sickness will be removed. Death will be no longer. And then perfection will come. Already here in the Spirit of Christ and yet not quite. Until that time, until heaven and earth disappear, not the least stroke of the law will disappear, Jesus says. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. How can that be? How can that be? The preceding verse, verse 19, should make every Bible teacher pause. It should make every Christian who is quick to dismiss the Old Testament, pause and reflect what Jesus is saying here. If Jesus states quite clearly how the Old Testament is binding, every word upon his followers until heaven and earth pass away, how can we ignore it? If someone is guilty of adultery, why don't we today sentence them to death? If someone breaks the Sabbath, why don't we condemn them to death? Why do we no longer sacrifice a lamb or a bull when we fall into sin? Why are our children no longer circumcised? These are all questions that we need to consider. The church has wrestled with this from the beginning. The Apostle Paul in Romans and Galatians, of course, expounds most clearly that the law is good, but it cannot make anyone righteous. Rather, it makes us aware of our sins. In placing our faith in the righteous one, Jesus Christ, that alone makes us righteous. And we're going to explore that more in the coming moments. But what about the Ten Commandments? What about the command to love our neighbor? What about the command to love God with everything that we have? As we will see, these commandments are specifically later endorsed in the Sermon on the Mounts. Now, the church has wrestled with this passage. Some would say that this is one of the most complex passages in all of Scripture to get our heads around. 
At least since Aquinas, a threefold pattern has been proposed for establishing what laws in the Old Testament may be binding and what laws we can put aside. And so a process has been put forward that there are three, at least three categories of law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civic law, and the moral law still stands. But the ceremonial and civic law have been completed in Jesus' cross. At the cross, Jesus' sacrifice fulfilled the need for the sacrificial system, the ceremonial law. In calling the 12 disciples, Jesus is instituting a new Israel, a new community. But the moral law, so this tradition asserts, endures. The Ten Commandments, the laws specifically moral in nature, endure. But this has its problems. As Don Carson rightly points out, how do we discern the moral law from others? Sabbath-keeping surely is a moral law, so how can we exclude the punishments? For my part, I come back to interpreting the lens of the Hebrew Scripture through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If a command is affirmed in the New Testament, it is binding the Old Testament law. If you break a command and teach others the same, your standing, Jesus says, is diminished in the kingdom of heaven. He calls us the least if we set them apart. We interpret the Old Testament in the light of the new. If a law in the old is affirmed in the new, it is still binding. It is fulfilled in Christ, but our lens that we interpret it through is the life death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus goes on to say this incredible statement in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. The Pharisees were the rule keepers extraordinaire. They had more rules than you could poke a stick at. 247 commands to obey, 365 prohibitions that must be avoided, and they set about obeying these religiously. And Jesus says that entry into the kingdom of God exceeds this sort of obedience. How do you think you will go obeying the 247 commands? Let me give you one command. Love God with everything you've got. Entry into the kingdom of God is not about keeping the rules. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, Jesus is going to illustrate this point with a number of examples of Old Testament laws. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, and these laws remain binding on his followers today, as we've already alluded. But what life in the kingdom invites you is a renewed heart. When Jesus says your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he is saying you will move from external rule keeping to an internalized freedom of the hearts. As Stott says, Christian righteousness exceeds Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than in degree. In other words, it's not the number of laws that you're obeying. It exceeds it in kind and nature. 
The prophet Jeremiah foreshadowed this when he said, This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their minds. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. Look it up this week. And the prophet Ezekiel said in chapter 36, 27, I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees, to be careful to keep my laws. In other words, this ability to obey God moves from an external law to an internal reality that's now in your heart and in your minds. And it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's filled up, it's perfected, it's brought to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the wonder and the joy of being able to obey the commands of God's? Do you know the wonder and the joy of having the commands of God written on your hearts and placed in your minds? Do you know the pure freedom of being led by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, who alone will awaken you to your desperate need of a Savior, convict you of your desperate poverty, and nothing, nothing that you bring is noble or good and pure. Remember the first beatitude that we heard two weeks ago, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Christ, the Spirit will give you the strength and the power, the burning passion to follow God's decrees, to be careful to keep his laws. Do you know that freedom today? Do you know the joy and the wonder of experiencing that righteousness today? Because if you don't, you can't enter the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying. If your life is about keeping rules, even God's rules, Jesus is saying, that's not enough. Your righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It doesn't matter if you keep 247 commands and avoid 364 prohibitions. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. These four or five verses are some of the hardest verses to interpret. And I would suggest to us this morning that they are the key to interpreting the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Ponder them this week. Wrestle with them this week. Prayerfully meditate on them this week. Jesus is saying that there is not one letter of the Old Testament. There is not one jot or tittle, not one word in the Old Testament that is going to pass away until heaven and earth passes away. And the reason he can say that is because they are fulfilled in his person. The word of God written is now revealed in the person of God incarnate. The word of God incarnate. And he brings, as the king of the kingdom, he ushers in the kingdom. The king of the kingdom is here. It's already here in his death at Calvary. He's instituted the kingdom. But it's not yet fulfilled. It's not yet here. It will be finalized when he returns. It will be consummated when he returns to judge the living and the, and the dead. 
And he invites you this morning to enter into the kingdom of heaven, not through keeping rules, not through obeying the commands, however many the commands they are. He invites you into the kingdom by coming with that poverty of spirit and saying, I have nothing of worth. I have nothing of worth. And yet, I believe, Jesus, that you are the righteous one. And his promise is that when you come in that place of humility, you come in that place of poverty, that he will bestow his righteousness in you. And then you get to experience the joy of being able to obey every command with a freedom that you have never experienced before. Do you know the righteousness of Christ? Do you know the righteousness of Christ? Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we sit under this word this morning, we acknowledge that you are the living words. And we thank you and we praise you that in you, the word of God written is fulfilled, is perfected, and is brought to fruition. And so I pray for each of us, Lord, that by your spirit, you would give us that poverty of spirit that we can acknowledge that we have nothing that we bring of worth apart from ourselves. And Lord, we thank you for your grace that you would impart your faith to us, inviting us into your kingdom through what you've done and who you are. Lord Jesus, I pray that as your grace descends on us now, you would grant us the faith to believe that you, Jesus, are the king of the kingdom and that in you all things are made perfect. We bow before you, we worship you. Come and lead us as a church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.